0: Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician and multiple Ironman finisher coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. I'm going to dispense with my usual brief monologue on this episode and get right to it, because on today's show, I conclude my series on increasing diversity in triathlon with a terrific interview with Nate Heath. Nate is an aboriginal triathlete in Sydney, Australia and our conversation went so far beyond just the lack of diversity in our sport. During our talk, Nate gave me a brief primer on the history of the Aboriginal experience in the land down under since the arrival of the British, and while you may have an inkling that said history isn't pretty, I'm afraid that it's so much worse than most of us could ever imagine. Fortunately, Things are improving, if ever so slightly, but so many challenges remain. And while triathlon is such an insignificant thing in the face of what indigenous peoples face in Australia, Nate and his friends in his club, TriMob, are doing a small part to raise awareness and participation in the hopes of undoing more than a century and a half of outrages. Before that, I do want to take a little time to address a medical issue that has gotten a lot of attention on the internet this past week. No, I can't give you any insight on how Garmin finally fixed their ransomware problem, but I do have some thoughts on another popular online triathlon phenomenon, and that is the very public self-awareness of Taren Gessel, better known to most as Triathlon Taren. If you're wondering what I'm talking about, or if you are curious about what I have to add to the conversation on this, I give you the answers, and that's coming up right now. I'm not completely certain of when I first heard of Triathlon Terran. I'm pretty sure that it was on slow twitch in a thread titled something like WTF Triathlon Terran, followed by some several thousand comments, which in the typical slow twitch way were either hilariously venomous or blandly neutral. I checked out a couple of his YouTube videos at the time, shrugged my shoulders in a kind of, I don't really get it kind of way and moved on, thinking that was that. Little did I know at that time that Taryn had somehow tapped into something and, before long, was quitting his day job, dedicating himself to a full-time, ever-expanding triathlon training and promoting empire of sorts. Now, to be sure, most of the promoting was of Taryn himself, in all of his goofy, self-deprecating, ah shucks, folksy, Canadiana way, but to be sure, a lot of triathletes, especially newbies, really loved him. Now, if you don't know what this newfound success did for the guy, you should know that he essentially started living like a pro triathlete. He was invited to travel to big-name races like Kona and Challenge Roth. He got to hang out with all the big names in the sport, train the same volume as a pro, and to his credit, started to put up some really impressive results because of it. Now, on the one hand, I thought, well, good for him. But on the other, I didn't really get it. I personally found him kind of abrasive and uninteresting, but to be sure, he was for the most part pretty harmless. The folks on Slow Twitch, of course, love to hate on him, and hardly a week goes by that there isn't some reference made to something that he said or done, and for a group of people who make a point of saying they don't follow him, they sure seem to know a whole lot about what he's up to. Anywho. Taron was well off my radar until this past weekend, when I got wind of a post that he'd put up on Facebook that was getting a lot of attention, and has given rise to this very segment. If you haven't seen it, Taron posts a couple of side-by-side pictures of himself, one from 2018 and one from now, showing a pretty dramatic change in his body shape, and not really in a good way. He's added a lot of weight, and most of it looks to be in the form of body fat, and he's clearly not happy about it. He goes on to write, and I'm quoting here, Quote, the last couple of years, my body held up through the training and I set personal bests at all distances and felt good during the training. Then this January, my body started to give out and stopped absorbing the training. I started putting on little bits of weight last year and put on even more as we had to ramp down training this spring. I started working with a functional medicine doctor who said he has an 84-year-old patient with better hormones than me. Testing shows that my neurotransmitters have crashed, which is why I feel pretty flat and unemotional. My mitochondrial function is lacking. My body isn't absorbing any nutrients, so my body is constantly telling me I'm hungry and storing every last possible calorie. Now, there's so much rubbish in this post that it's hard for me to even know where to start. And many, many physicians who are themselves triathletes also took notice and immediately started posting themselves, aware that triathlon has so many followers and that his peddling this kind of dangerous disinformation could lead to yet more of the kind of turning away from real science and medicine that we are seeing around the country right now and that is getting us into real trouble. So where to begin? First, let me acknowledge that I don't know Taryn from Adam, and that I'm sure he's a really nice guy who clearly is very good at social media and has made himself pretty darn good at triathlon. But just like I won't give social media advice to Taryn or his followers, I kind of wish that he'd refrain from dispensing ill informed health and wellness information to anyone. Taryn's a middle aged man who went pretty quickly from a bare-bones training volume to pro-level training and incorporated into that some kind of radical fad diets on the advice of some what I will call questionable nutritionists. As I've discussed here before, high-fat and low-carbohydrate diets are not a great solution for high-volume endurance athletes, especially those who are in middle age. And yet, that's exactly what Taryn was on, Taren talks about feeling as though he's starving and having emotional lows, and no wonder. It's because he's ketotic all the time and simply responding to his body's overwhelming need for sugar. For goodness sakes, man, have a cookie, or better yet, a salad. Worse, Taren speaks frequently of being overtrained, and that's not just in this post, but in other posts before this. He talks about having blood tests that show that. Now, first of all, There's no blood test to show that you're overtrained. And second of all, if you're a middle-aged dude who's overtrained, the answer's pretty simple. Allow yourself to recover more. Taryn is quite simply a victim of his own success, but he just can't see it. And like so many others who can't see that they've gotten themselves into their own mess, he looks for quick answers. And who does he seek out? Someone called a functional medicine doctor. Now, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole on this one, but functional medicine is really nothing magical. But it's only a few steps more legitimate than some of the pseudoscientific alternative health practices that one can find on the internet. No question, there's some merit to functional medicine in that it has a holistic approach to patient care. But to be very honest, I'm uncertain that there's a whole lot that it offers beyond the incorporation of nutritional guidance to standard medical practice. And in many cases, and certainly in the case of whichever practitioner Taryn saw, it can be worse than that. Now, I don't have a huge problem with Taryn seeing a functional medicine doctor, but I do have a problem with whoever it is that he chose to see, because what this person told him is just plainly outrageous. Neurotransmitters crashing and hormone levels that are worse than an 84-year-old are basically completely made-up metrics, and I'm not even going to talk about depressed mitochondrial function, which is something that can't even be measured. They're of absolutely no value whatsoever to Taryn or anybody else. And I'm betting this diagnosis was followed by the offer to sell many hundreds of dollars of supplements that would lead to a magical restoration of health in no time at all. Look, like I said, I don't know Taron, and I certainly wish him nothing but goodwill and a return to the form that he so recently had. But what I'd like more than anything is for him to recognize that his issues lie not with hormone or neurotransmitter levels, but instead with seeking out advice from people who maybe don't have his best interests at heart. A good coach, physician, nutritionist, whatever – They're going to watch their athlete, patient, or client carefully and be on the lookout for the kinds of symptoms that Taryn developed and are going to do what's needed to make sure that they don't arise and that if they do, they're going to be dealt with swiftly. I genuinely feel bad for Taryn, and I hope that he cuts bait with the people who have gotten him into this mess. Maybe if he gets in with a coach who can use, say, I don't know, evidence-based science as a basis for what they do, he might just come out all the better for it. Heck, if he's listening, I even know where he can find someone just like that. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the show? Well, email it to me at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. The lack of diversity in triathlon is not just a problem here in North America. It is also something that is of concern across the ocean in both Australia and New Zealand. I'm joined today by Nat Heath from Sydney, who is an Aboriginal triathlete and who works in Aboriginal education. Nat grew up in Foster, which was the site of the original Ironman Australia, and at a young age would bicycle out onto the course where he would watch the Ironman athletes go by. At that tender young age, he was taken with the sport and in 2011 actually became a triathlete. He was consumed with the idea of qualifying for the Ironman in Hawaii, and in 2015 actually won his age group at the Ironman Australia and got to go to the Big Island. He has also qualified for the 70.3 World Championship several times and was hoping to get to Taupo this year, but unfortunately, the pandemic had other things in mind, and so that race is not scheduled to happen right now. But in the interim, he has done a lot of other things to advocate for Aboriginals in triathlon, including starting a team called TriMob, which is a team of Aboriginal athletes that was designed to really show a positive aspect of Aboriginal people in triathlon. And Nat is joining me today to talk about the issues that face Aboriginals both uh, in and out of the sport in Australia and I am super excited to have him here. Nat, thank you so much or I guess I should say good day.
1: G'day mate, yeah. <laughs> um, and in my language, which is uh, so Aboriginal language from where my people originate from, it's Kaya. So Kaya's hello or greetings.
0: Kaya, excellent. Kaya. Give me a sense of the lay of the land of what it looks like when you go to a triathlon in Australia. And I know that Australia is triathlon mad. Uh, mm-hmm. Does it tend to have the same issues of being a pretty much white only sport the way it is here in North America?
1: You know, like you said, I got into triathlon in 2011 and i I guess from what I can see um, here in Australia, and I, I think it's the same across the world, is it's a definitely an Anglo sport. Um, and I think a lot of that, I guess, has to do with it's really a sport for the wealthy. Um, and I guess in our context in Australia, when you look at Aboriginal Australians, um Uh, much lower income um, and socioeconomic status, which is at the lower end compared to, say, the mainstream. Um, So to get into the sport, the one thing that I've noticed with triathlon, if you're a kid, you don't get into the sport unless your parents do it. And for our community, within the Aboriginal community, there's not many people that have been doing triathlons. Um, And triathlon sort of became, I guess, introduced into Australia since probably the 1980s. Um, but for us growing up, we never really saw Aboriginal triathletes um, as like as people above us. So it was never like a role model sort of thing to then go into. So for us, like the main sports that were always an opportunity for our people to excel was always kind of similar to what you probably see in America is football. So for us, that's like rugby league or AFL, um, uh, boxing, running, but when we talk about running, we talk about sprint. So, you know, that shorter distance. So for our communities, it's something that we've never really envisaged to go into. Um, And I've sort of made note, like one of the biggest triathlons in Australia, which is up in Noosa, the Noosa Triathlon, it's sort of one of the meccas. If you have a look, so I did a Google search of Noosa Triathlon yesterday just out of interest, and all the images that you see are of, you know, non-Indigenous people, so predominantly Anglo people, with sort of a splatter, like a very thin speckle of maybe people from some sort of Asian background. Um, but as far as, you know, black faces, you just don't see that within the triathlon community. And I guess that's a part of what we're trying to address with um, our new club, which has just formed Trimob.
0: Do you have a sense, or do you know from U- or USA? Sorry, do you have a sense, or do you know from uh, Triathlon Australia what the percentages are, or of participation of Aboriginal athletes?
1: No, so that's it's a good question. So I know now um, when you actually so to register to be a triathlon or to do triathlons, you generally become a member of Triathlon Australia, which then affiliates you to a, a state. So for us, where I'm based, it'd be Triathlon New South Wales. And there is the question around are you of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander descent? So they are recording that, but there's no stats that they have sort of publicly outface, outward facing to show how many people are doing it. Um, so that would be an interesting um, thing for us, I guess, as TriMob to maybe work with um, Triathlon Australia to look at, well, here are our numbers and what, you know, do we want to set targets that we want to try to achieve? Um a part of what we want to do in TriMob is obviously grow the sport or the opportunity for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia to get into the sport. So just for you guys over in America or Canada, where in the, the north. In Australia, we have two Indigenous um, groups. So there's Aboriginal people and then there's also Torres Strait Islander people. So the Torres Strait Islander from uh, the top of Queensland. So they're a different group of people, but still Indigenous to this country. And a lot of the struggles that we go through, we, I guess, work together as a unified group because we face the same issues. Um, but, yeah, that is something that I think would be really interesting for us to work with tri- Triathlon Australia to try to identify where are we at and where do we need to get to. The, I know off sort of just from setting up TriMob, we've, we definitely have at least 15 um, First Nations people that I'm aware of. I think it's actually probably more Um but it would be interesting to see as TriMob grows and we get our members start to come in, what that exact number is.
0: I know, uh, you know, the history of uh, the treatment of Aboriginal people in Australia is very poor. Um, mm. But just for uh, North American listeners who may not know, um, Australia did not have slavery per se. Uh, correct me if I'm speaking out of turn here. Um go ahead.
1: Yeah, so I will correct you so it's it's actually a, a a big debate. It's not even a debate. It's just uh misinformation or um lies essentially. So our, our prime minister just uh the other day came out and said, you know, in comparing what's going on in America, you know, we're really lucky we never had slavery in Australia. However, that's factually incorrect. So um in Australia, look, Australia was founded in 1901 as a country. Prior to that, it was states and territories. But when it was founded, it was actually founded under what was called the White Australia Policy. Um, and as a part of that, and the, the, I mean, essentially, Australia wanted to be a white country, but they were very happy to use black people for a lot of labour. So in Australia, we had what was called blackbirding, where essentially people were stolen from. <clears throat> South Sea Islanders um, were actually taken, removed from their nations, and predominantly brought into Queensland to do cane cutting at no cost. Um, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people. There was a what was called the Aboriginal Protection Acts in different states, which essentially they were trying to breed out Aboriginal people. And as a part of that, they would essentially remove the boys and the girls. The girls would be trained as domestic servants the men would be trained to be, you know, work on farms, outstations, you know, you know, cane cutting, all that sort of manual labour. So those, once they sort of become older, they would then leave those missionary reserves where they were taken to and removed from their families and essentially then put onto stations or into houses to work and they weren't paid a cent to do that. So you could say that slavery wasn't the term that was used, but it was definitely slavery Um My great-grandmother was removed when she was two years old um, and trained to be a domestic servant, and essentially she was a slave um, for a guy who um, was Philip Neville, who ended up becoming the chief protector of Aboriginal people in Western Australia. So every part of her life, whilst under his um, control, um, the, the Western Australian state was controlling her every move. So if she wanted a pair of shoes, she would have to request it, and the state could deny that. Yet she still had to work um, for this man, um, do a chores that she would never get paid for him. It was just recently, so there was a, a big um, case in Queensland, which is a state um, above us in New South Wales, that they just had, a, I'll try to get it right, but essentially a legal win where I think they took um, the Queensland state to the Supreme Court around unpaid wages to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and South Sea Islanders where they were essentially working for – so the Queensland state kept the money, said, we will give this to you when you're ready, but then they never did. So these people were working, and a lot of the industries, the oyster industry, pearl diving industry, sugar cane industry, um, the railway industries were all on the back of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, yet they were never compensated for their work. So –
0: so typical, Sorry, no, no typical white European colonization yeah. of a land where there's indigenous peoples, and, and and this kind of treatment extended in late into the 20th century, where Aboriginal people really didn't have almost full rights of citizenship until very late, correct?
1: Yeah, so it wasn't until 1967 that Australia held a referendum where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were counted as citizens in this country. So prior like they what they were had the ability to vote in some states but essentially prior to 67 our people were classed under the Flora and Fauna Act so seen as animals and having uh, I mean, so essentially the states and territories controlled Aboriginal people's lives and then what happened after 1967 is essentially they'll counted as citizens but then they came under control of the Commonwealth so the Australian federal government essentially then were able to control or had the um, ownership of Aboriginal people so it was interesting you know people as far as census people would count sheep dogs because Australia was obviously a massive um, sort of cattle export so they'd count cows but they wouldn't count Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as a part of um, citizens within this country even though we'd been here for 60,000 years and look the, the historical concept uh, context too is Australia was claimed under what was called terra nullis which meant a land belonging to no one so when um james cook um came to australia in 1770 he was given um strict guidelines from the king either i think it was the king at the time um either you get permission of the natives if there are any or that you have to i guess lodge claim of the land if there's no one there and essentially what happened is he kept getting pushed off the coast so a lot of people think that he claimed Australia on in Botany Bay, which is just around the corner, but he actually claimed um, Australia on a little island called Possession Island, which is off Queensland, where there was actually physically no Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people at the time and claimed the whole of the east coast of Australia. So he did that essentially illegally. And in 1992, we had what was called the Marbo decision, which overturned the notion that Australia was terra nullis nice and that it didn't belong to anyone and the fact that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people had been here since time immemorial, um, memorial, we should say, um, so the whole foundation of this country was set up on an illegal takeover.
0: Now it's interesting because not not to suggest that the Maori people got a good deal because they didn't, mm. but they certainly got a much better deal, and. Cook was involved with New Zealand as well. So it's interesting to me yep. that, uh, you know, two countries which are fairly proximate and yep. yet really handled the indigenous peoples incredibly differently I, I i wonder if that had to do with the fact that the maori were just so much more assertive in terms of their you know yeah. uh ability to fight or yeah um i, I just you know it's it, it's quite amazing having been to both countries and seen how mm. the maori definitely again not to suggest they got a good deal because they didn't mm. but they certainly got a much better shake than uh, the aboriginal of australia
1: yeah yeah definitely so there's there's you know, there's reasons behind that which you kind of already highlighted in that um, Maori come from more of a warring people. Um, so they were set up in a way where the, the Maoris fought with other Maoris for pieces of land. Um, and, you know, they've come from different parts of Polynesia and made their way down. So my understanding, and I don't want to talk in a turn, I don't want to speak on behalf of obviously um, Maori people too, but... Um, but the people up the north were essentially the dominant group and people, they would fight for the best part of the lands, which north was warmer. Um, So they had a culture of, I guess, um, warriors, Um, whereas in our culture we weren't necessarily a warring culture. Sure, there was different issues that may have led to um, some form of battle, but it wasn't to the same context as what the Maoris did. We also had very strict Aboriginal nations, which meant, this is your area and if you want to go into someone else's area, you need to seek permission from that that different nation. So um, if you have a look at, there's a, there's a thing called the Tyndale's map, uh, Norman Tyndale, who is an anthropologist, he kind of shows the different Aboriginal nations from across Australia and there's about 350. Um, and within those nations, then you've got people who then speak different languages too. So I guess the part of the where Maoris have been really successful in keeping culture alive is one, they they were able to resist um, the English much better than what we were able to. Um, they had their treaty with Tangi, which has issues in itself, um, but it did give them some sort of stronghold in some context. They also have a mono language too. So as far as New Zealand um, embracing Maori culture they're able to, you know, there's no disagreement on which languages should use, whereas in Australia, like the language that's used here is completely different to the language that's used in WA, Western Australia, I should say. So um, it's created different challenges for us in Australia as opposed to, um, I guess, our Maori brothers and sisters.
0: All right. Well, that's a lot of like really great context. And I really appreciate you taking the time to explain it to me. Um, But let's bring it back to triathlon in the present. I want to hear about tri-mob. And I I, I do have to tell my listeners that while mob can have a negative connotation here in North America, a mob (laughs) is uh, what you call a group of kangaroos. So uh, I'm assuming that's why it's a tri-mob. So tell us about uh, TriMob and uh, what uh, got you started there and uh, how that's helped in increasing Aboriginal uh, participation in triathlon.
1: Yeah, so look, firstly, TriMob's just in its infancy, so we've only really started establishing this year. Um, But look, essentially it was born from a conversation. So one of my mates, um, Tyrone Bean, he just got into triathlon at the end of last year. And you know, when you get that triathlon bug, it's like every conversation's about triathlon. You're just really excited. You're really frothing. Um, and we, I was actually coming back from Western Sydney, I think maybe I'd just done, no, it was just before I'd done the Western Sydney triathlon. And I was sort of getting back into t- training. And he was like, you know, we started talking about how good it would be to have a triathlon organization. Um, an Aboriginal triathlon organisation or club where we're representing our people. Because we talked about, you know, there was a few Aboriginal and Torres Island people doing the sport, but we weren't we're representing different clubs or different training groups. We weren't really representing us as a collective. And we thought it would be a really good idea. Why don't we try to, to get it up and running? So essentially at the start of this year, I was like, let's just do it. So I, we kind of created a little group of... Um, Aboriginal people that we knew were doing the sport to see whether they were interested in, I guess, helping it grow and whether they would want to represent um, a club if we formed it. And everyone was like, yeah, 100%, we want to do it. So essentially Mob was born. So as you are sort of, for us, um, when we talk about community or Aboriginal community, we might talk about that's our mob, that's your mob. Um, so it's sort of this got this context of explaining family, Explaining Aboriginal Nation group, explaining the broader context of just Aboriginal group, and you are correct. Uh, a group of kangaroos is called a mob as well, so it's kind of a part of our language that's been handed down to. So we figured let's call it Try Mob. And a couple of goals for us is one to for all the Aboriginal tri Australia people that are currently doing the sport, let's have our own club. Um, the second part is let's try by having our own club and becoming more visible to our communities, it may encourage more people to get into the sport. So whether that's young people, old people, just to, you know, give triathlon a go because one of the things that's, you know, as you're probably aware, like triathlon can be a bit of a sort of peacocking sport where everyone's sort of looking at each other, looking down at each other. Are they good? Are their cars big? What bike do they have? So it can be quite a – it can be a bit of an intimidating sport and we figure by having – Us there, that may take a bit away that intimidation and encourage more people who probably were like, Oh, I don't know if that's a sport I can do. Um, And actually seeing Aboriginal people go, Oh, you ride 40k, like, and you're like, Well, actually, I ride a lot further, but you can break down those barriers because they can see if you can do it, then maybe I can do it as well. So there's that aspect. Um, And the other part of it is we wanted to provide. I guess, kind of like an opportunity for non-Indigenous people to be engaged or involved in our community. So there is a definite gap in relationship between Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Like we have some non-Indigenous people very good at, you know, creating relationships with Aboriginal people. But for a large majority of the community, like a lot of people have misconceptions around our communities, they're scared of our communities, and they're also sometimes they want to get involved but they don't know what to do. So we figured by having this club, maybe that's an opportunity for the Australian triathlon community and hopefully the world triathlon community to be able to, I guess, engage within our, our communities, in our culture, and to see the, you know, the good stuff in our culture because there is a lot of good. We have, you know, we're the oldest living and remaining culture in the world. We've been here for over sixty thousand years, and a part of the Australian dilemma is we've never really celebrated that. We've always seen that as that's their history, and Australia doesn't see it as part of our history. So Australia keeps talking about itself as a young country of only being, you know, 230 to 250 years old but that's not true like we've been here for 60,000 years so if we can influence the triathlon community to see our community and get engaged with it then we can break down barriers in a sport that is highly highly anglo and I think that's a you know a strong not a start for us but if that's something that we can do within a sport that we're passionate about then let's do it
0: I know there's a lot of, uh, racism in Australian society against, uh, Aboriginal people. Uh, have you yourself or have any of your tri-mob teammates encountered racism at triathlons?
1: Um, I can't say that I've experienced racism at triathlons. Definitely experienced racism in sport in Australia and I've experienced racism in Australia. Um, there's probably people who I've um, – uh, I wouldn't say they're racist, but they have misconceptions of our communities um, who are involved in triathlon, but I've never personally experienced um, that. I, de- I think the biggest thing, the challenge is it's not racist, but it's in Australia and the same as I think what's happening in America is you've got systems of power and those systems of power um, – do not relate to our communities. Um, The the power structures have been set up to disadvantage Aboriginal people and, you know, whether that's through employment opportunities, whether that then relates to our health outcomes, whether it relates to our educational, see like even in our educational context, so I I work in Aboriginal education, the whole narrative around education is from a non-Indigenous perspective. Um, so for an Aboriginal kid walking into a classroom, they never see themselves in that classroom. They only, you know, they learn about Captain Cook Discovered Australia and they're like, hang on, well, where were my family? So that then relate that has, overgo- I guess, what's the right word? It, it has continuous effects where our kids then don't get into finishing completing education. They don't then get employment. And the, the fact is if you don't have employment, you can't afford to get into the sport of triathlon. So... Until we sort of break down these structures which have systematically disadvantaged First Nations people, it's really hard for us then to really get involved um, to the same extent as non-Indigenous people in triathlon. And I guess a part of what we want to try to do in TriMob is eventually, um, because it is an expensive sport, how can we support people who maybe not would not be able to normally afford to get in the sport to at least try it. So if we can eventually become an organisation where we go out to communities and we take bikes out and we give the kids opportunity to to do a, events, even if it's just a, a run bike or if we can incorporate a swim. The other the challenge for us is a lot of Aboriginal people are really scared to swim because, to be honest, Jaws had a massive impact in our communities. To go to the beach, there's some communities that, really good they'd get into surfing and that but there's a lot of fear about going out and swimming in deep ocean and then you've also got the northern part of australia which has saltwater crocodiles which makes it another challenge so if we can i guess try to as a, a group um make it a little bit easier for people to get into the sport and if that's breaking down costs where we can get you know sponsors to come on board to help us um where we can get race companies to provide um yeah, you know, initially if we can go we'll get 30 athletes there but if you can drop the price for it then that's something that we might be able to do so
0: so you've mentioned a lot of strategies that you've thought of and I, they're all excellent to try and introduce this sport to more aboriginal people uh do you think there's anything the triathlon australia could do to to try and encourage more diversity from the aboriginal community and are they doing anything
1: yes yeah, so i i would I'm not aware of them doing it yet, but that's not to say it's not. And I hope that TriMob, with our affiliation now with Tri- Triathlon Australia, we can become that pipeline because um, there's a whole heap of hidden talent there. There's clearly talent within Aboriginal communities and they should be trying to target and harness that as opposed to waiting for those communities to come to them because if people can't afford it, they're never going to get there. So, I mean, what I think would be really good is, one, if we can try to introduce the sport into the, some of our communities, but start looking at, you know, at school athletics carnivals, it's just kids who are just like, wow, that kid can really run and he's not even, like, training for it. And you'll find quite a lot of them are uh, Aboriginal kids in Australia. So I think it's just about looking differently at where talent is as opposed to waiting for you have to do a triathlon, you have to – you know, come from a certain family background before we start looking at you. Mm. Um, and until that happens, it's going to be difficult. Like, you even look at the context just in athletics in general. Like we had Kathy Freeman in 2000 win the Sydney Olympics in the 400, and we haven't really seen an Aboriginal person since. And yet there's been so much talent. But, you know, people get quickly, they run through the system and they're not culturally supported. And that's the big thing. I think people like kind of use the brett sutton uh process where you chuck an egg at the wall and if it breaks then it's no good but you can't do that in an aboriginal context there's this whole cultural aspect that you need to embrace and take upon when working with a an athlete and also so you have to can't just look at that athlete you have to look at the broader kinship family structure How does that fit in with supporting that athlete? How does that community – because once you start removing – because this is generally what happens with the systems is they remove people and go, you're going to come to our system, which is based in, say, Gold Coast. But then you're taking that kid off country and it's never going to work. And I'm not saying they've actually even gone to this step, but if we are going to work with and try to find Aboriginal talent, they would have to completely rethink the way that they do work with that talent because – you see it even with our rugby league. It's like you have to have a strong cultural support around that child or that athlete to ensure that they're successful.
0: Yeah, you've raised some really excellent points, and I mean, I've heard some of that even in talking with uh, Black triathletes here, talking about you. Know, you you've pointed out, you know, all, a lot of the same. Uh, concepts that are keeping Black athletes out of triathlon and immigrant athletes out of triathlon are the same kinds of things that you know are affecting Aboriginal uh, athletes. Um, mm. One of the big differences you've just alluded to and spent some time discussing, which is that you know that cultural family bond, uh, mm. and uh, I think that's that's something when you when you get into the elite athlete who would be taken somewhere for training, but that doesn't mm. necessarily affect the age group athlete. Where would you like to see? things go i mean obviously you guys are just starting with trimob and it sounds yep. like you've got a plan you've got some thoughts about how to uh move it forward and to try and increase uh diversity in the sport uh, maybe not just aboriginals but other uh, uh co- other communities as well uh what ideally would uh you know be defined as success for you
1: i think success for us is one for our first year just to have a club that's up and running that we're proud of that. We're comfortable with. We have our own kits, our own uniforms, um, and we're all sort of there supporting each other. And this whole COVID situation's kind of um, killed a little bit of the momentum for us on that. But that's not necessarily a bad thing because we don't want it to be a big loud bang and then quickly fizzle out as well. Um, so I think success would look like a club that's in ten years' time, we're still going. We've now grown our membership where we have, you know, 500 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people across the country um, participating or giving triathlon a go. We have an organisation that goes out and introduces or does little triathlon uh, events in communities and also events for our elders too. Um, We do have very low life expectancy and cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes. Um, a major contributing factors that lead to so we've got a life expectancy about sort of 15 to 20 years less than non-indigenous people and that worsens in some other um, uh, sort of states and territories and remote communities and if we can make this sport an attractive sport that's fun for people that might help I guess be one of the battles to take on sort of that type 2 diabetes and we can provide an educational forum to, to educate our communities in a narrative that they're comfortable with. Um, we can try to, I guess, support lowering that you know life expectancy gap. Um, so I think if we can go out, run community events, make it fun, have elders events, have kids events. And then, you know, if we can see a pipeline to talent we can work with Triathlon Australia to do these sort of things, then we can support, you know, Australia becoming um, a stronghold again in triathlon, having, you know, maybe one day, even just one of our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids make the ITU series. If that's something that's possible, that would be awesome. Um, obviously, going to the Olympics and all that's just the added bonus. But the big thing is just getting more people in the sport getting people more confident in doing sport. And then for the non-Indigenous community, having more non-Indigenous people um, interested and being members of our club as well. And I would really like to see one thing that I'd like is, you know, there's a real opportunity for us to do as a club, um, fundraise for things that we think are important or we're passionate about, whether that's Aboriginal education, Aboriginal health. And we can really change the narrative, which sometimes negative or very negative in mainstream media that look at this triathlon club over 10 years. They've raised, you know, half a million dollars for this cause, that cause, whatever. Um, And that can really change the narrative in the way that people see our communities and also portray our communities.
0: Well, that is uh, all incredible, uh, you know, aspirational stuff, yeah. uh, Nat. And I can't uh, thank you enough both for what you're doing, but also for joining me today to tell me about it. Uh, Nat Heath is in Sydney, Australia. He's an Aboriginal triathlete who runs, uh, who co-runs, I guess, the TriMob team uh, of Aboriginal triathletes. You can find them on Instagram. Are you on Facebook as well?
1: Uh, yeah, we are, but we haven't done much on there. So I would just sort of stick to TriMob, um, which is on Instagram. Uh, hopefully, we'll should have some more announcements coming soon as far as our logo is just about ready. Uh, and I'll be working with an organisation here in Australia around our triathlon kit design. So Excellent. actually, one of our yeah, one of our guys who just got into the sport after TriMob sort of launched on Instagram, he's given us a piece of artwork for us to design with the kit too. So Really excited to see how that sort of comes up and having this Aboriginal design kit for everyone to see, um, hopefully in events in Australia soon and maybe even internationally.
0: That is fantastic. Well, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I really appreciate the history lesson and uh, the conversation about how Australia can increase uh, diversity in its uh, triathlon events uh, by including more Aboriginal people. Nat, thank you so much for joining me on the TriDog podcast.
1: No worries. Thanks for having
0: me. And that's it for another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I hope that you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. If you're still listening, you may be interested to know that I've changed my podcast host. And as a result, the website for the podcast has been updated. You could find archives of all the show, as well as a handy collections feature where I've grouped the shows by category at the Podcast dot podcastcaptivatecom Dot .fm. You can also find my new podcast that I'm doing with my daughter Samantha, Dead and Slaughter, the Dad and Daughter Horror Show, where we review different horror films and talk about how they've held up over time. You can find that on all of the usual podcast platforms. That's Dead and Slaughter, the Dad and Daughter Horror Show. I hope you'll check it out. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like for me to consider answering on future episodes? Well, make sure to send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit trydoccoaching.com where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the Tridoc podcast Facebook page, Tridoc Coaching on Instagram, and the Tridoc Coaching YouTube channel. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small, independent bands a chance. I hope that you've downloaded this, subscribed, and left me a review and a rating, because those really do help. Don't forget to tell a friend. I'm always looking for more listeners. The Doc Podcast will be back again soon, with another medical question for me to answer, and an interview with another interesting person from the world of multisport. Until then train hard train hard